Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. You don't love me! There's one race in the NASCAR record book that has no winner, and I did win that race, and someday I will get credit for it. Bernard whacked me in the shoulder and said, give him a shot. I said, what? Yeah, give him a shot. He wanted me to run into him. We'd go around a hotel room and sleep about 10 people in it. We had no money. 
the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. I don't know who you think this is by the sound of my voice, but I am Steve Wade. And I'm most definitely Rick Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, we are at episode 46. We are five episodes away from 50. 50 episodes. We're getting there. Can you believe that? No. And we're coming up on a year since our very first episode. I like that. If nothing else, we've got durability. (laughs) And this week, we are going to be talking about the second installment of our interview with Ray Evernham. We are going to talk about how there were some rumors before Jeff Gordon started his first race. There were some rumors that Ray was going to be replaced as the crew chief. So I think maybe there's some truth in it because he said himself that he did not feel prepared to be a cup crew chief. No, he did. And I heard those rumors way back then. And uh, quite frankly, had it turned out to be the truth, I wouldn't have been overly surprised. And then we're also going to talk about, of course, Jeff Gordon's very first cup win at Charlotte that Ray had a huge part to play in. And then we're going to talk about Ray's reaction to winning the inaugural Brickyard 400 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where he had dreamed of driving for Roger Penske. Exactly. That was an historic race for Jeff Gordon and for NASCAR. The entire state of Indiana, it seemed, went nuts. The hometown boy won the big one. And then in our issue of the week with the cup circuit headed out to Sonoma, California on the road course there, We're going to take a look at the May 9th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Scene. Rusty Wallace won, but he had an issue after the race. And let's just say that I, too, had issues. Well, (laughs) issues. At that race. (laughs) Issues, huh? Well, that's a polite way to put it, I guess. (laughs) And on Patreon, we have increased support from Eddie Greer III, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. PayPal.me slash the same vault podcast. Help us out if you can. We would truly appreciate it. It is what makes this podcast go. Now, there was a story at some point in 1992 that there was talk in the garage that Eddie Dickerson was going to take over as. Jeff's crew chief. Was there anything to that? Was it connected to Ray J or was it maybe you had told me at one point that you didn't feel quite ready to be a crew chief or was that just scuttlebutt that there was nothing to it? Well, I don't know. I, you know, there's all, where there's smoke, there's fire. Heck, I mean, I honestly, it was kind of funny because I, I, I was not ready to be a cup crew chief. I was not. And <laughs> yeah. I was pretty clear about that. I said, I'll be the chassis guy. I'll be there. They're like, oh, no, you're going to be the crew chief. And, you know, Rick Hendrick, again, is he's an amazing guy because he always had the ability to see more in me than I saw in myself. And that day he's like, well, that's the only job we got. That's what you're going to be. You're going to be the crew chief. And uh, Jeff, want, he said, Jeff wants you to be the crew chief. I want you to be the crew chief. Do you want yeah. it or not? Yeah. And he was, <laughs> wow. uh, he's, uh, he's like, I'll help you. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll help you. I've got people here that will help you. We'll be good. And, uh, and again, he saw that in me and he stuck behind me because in 93, we didn't, we, you know, we, we won a 125 at Daytona, uh, 94. You know, we went back to Daytona. I think we won the shootout. But, you know, we weren't really win- – we didn't win a points race and, and, uh, and all of 93. And he stood behind me the, the, the whole time. But uh, there was certainly – I think that Eddie Dickerson was uh, at that time there and had been a crew chief and could have stepped in had 
um, I, I had chosen to uh, uh, to take time off uh, for Ray J. So there probably was something behind uh, as a standby backup scuttlebutt. But I can tell you that Rick Hendrick stood behind me 100% as a crew chief till the day I left there. How did you develop that sense of leadership? Because you go from a guy who feels absolutely not ready to be in a crew chief to a guy who basically wrote the book on how to be a crew chief in today's NASCAR world. How did you develop that? I studied. Uh, I, I really studied hard. And, and even though um, people give me a lot of credit for that, see, the, the, there were a lot of guys before me that didn't have all of the new, the explosion in television and media and social media and, and things like that. But, you know, you look all the way back to guys like Carl Kanoffer and Ray Fox, Smokey Eunuch, Leonard Wood, you know, like those guys all did the same thing. But, you know, they were good leaders. They were good organizers. They were good innovators. They understood, but they didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily get the credit that we got because, you know, all of a sudden the sport's exploding, it's a national deal, and, you know, Ray Evernham's getting all this credit. And all I did was take the things that they did and try and make them fit a professional sport. And by that, I mean, I started to, you know, read a lot about professional sports like football, basketball, because I'm not a stick and ball guy, but I love Vince Lombardi, love his leadership style. Pat Riley, you know, uh, um, Bill Parcells, guys that I could re really relate with and actually would call those guys, you know, I, well, I can't call them Marty, obviously, but, you know, spoke to Pat Riley, spoke to Bill Parcells and really looked at the 24 team like a professional team. And I needed to step up and be a leader. And there's, you know, we broke it down offense and defense. And I, I really knew how much the mental side of the sport uh, made a difference. And, and I just really kind of rolled all those things now into, you know, you needed to be more than just a great mechanic. You needed to be a great leader because the job was uh, the job was changing. And I actually probably enjoyed that part of of being in that role as a coach, if you will, with the guys a, a, as much as I did building the cars. And I love building cars. Nineteen ninety four Coca Cola six hundred at Charlotte. What went into your decision, that last pit stop, to take just two tires? We'd practiced it. We knew, you know, at that time, we were some things leading up, there was a little bit of a difference in the radial tire. Um, you know, the, 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 the fall off wasn't as bad. Some of the two tire stuff had been working, and we practiced. One of the things we used to do is try at one point, because we used to get some practice. I mean, we used to, it's not like today. You just, you got to go do this, and that's boom, your practice over. We, you know, we'd, hell, yeah. we'd roll in on Wednesday, and we'd do nothing but practice till <laughs> yeah. Saturday. Yeah. So every place that we went, we tried to put on two tires and run 15, 20 laps, just so we knew what the drop-off was. So we did it at Charlotte at the time, and we, we knew, you know, X amount of tenths per second per lap we were giving up, and if it came down to it and we got in position, I said, man, if you know if this caution comes out or, or doesn't come out, if we got a pit with, with 20 to go, I think put two tires on this thing. And it was really just a, a matter of math. So sure enough, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end there, and everybody's got a pit again. Rusty's leading. He fires down pit road, four tires, about 16 seconds, and, and takes off. Bodine's running second with a seven car. And comes down pit road and misses his pit or spins or something, but but he's out now, right? So I'm waiting it out, you know. So, so we're counting it down, and I remember Mr. Hendrick was was standing there, and people were going, "When are you going to pit?" I said, "Just just just I'm going to watch this cycle here." And I watched everybody start pitting, start pitting, four tires, four tires, 
and we got inside about 18 laps. And I knew that we were going to be about two tenths of a second slower than Rusty on four. But if we did two, we could get out of the pits in about nine seconds. So that's going to give us a seven second deal. Okay, so we were three seconds behind him. We should come out four seconds ahead of him. And he is not going to be able to catch us in 15 laps. So we, you know, I remember saying to the guys, look at me, look at me, because I didn't want to say it on the radio. And I just started holding up two, 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 two. And when Jeff hit pit road, I said, be ready. We're doing two tires, two tires, two tires. And Mr. Hendrick, I remember him going, are you sure? We can afford four. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, he, he didn't get, try and get me to change my mind. So I said, yeah, we got this. We got it. We got it. So we, um, we put on the two tires and Jeff came out. I think we're about three seconds ahead of Rusty by the time all, all was done. And uh, I remember that uh, the guys in the booth, I think it was Richard Petty, was on TV that day. And he's like, oh, that was probably not a good decision. You know, Rusty's going to catch him in four tires. And Jeff not only held him, um, he started to pull away from him. So, you know, everybody's like, oh, that was a great call, great call. And I'm thinking, no, no, it was it was, it was was simple math. We did it a lot of places. Uh, uh, felt like we had a pretty good handle on the radial tire, what to do with pressures and things like that when you, when you matched two new rights against two used lefts where a lot of guys were missing it um, because again all my experience at IROC that's all we did was uh, test radial tires for Goodyear for a long time and you know we, we, we hit it right that night and it, it was it was just an incredible incredible victory lane you know that was that was one we'd look back and say we, we, we stole from Rusty. <laughs> there wasn't a person in the sport who didn't covet a win in the inaugural Brickyard 400 in Indy. What do you remember about that week? I think it was just special. You know, as I said, that was really, really special for me because that's where I wanted to go. And um, when I walked into to Indy, and still do, I'm, I'm going to be there next Wednesday, and the hair stands up on the back of my neck. It's just an incredible, it's an incredible place. When you walk through that gate um, to Gasoline Alley, you, you really, it's very humbling, um, and you have to be very respectful of of, of what's going on at that place yeah. and those who've gone before you. So it was amazing to me. Went there, really prepared. Uh, called A.J. Foyt, Poncho Carter, um, Wayne Leary, who was Dan Gurney's crew chief. Got all the guys I knew to talk about what, what, tell me about Indy. Tell me, what is it? What do we got to do? What do we do? And we built a car, a special car uh, for, uh, at Hendrick uh, for that, that race. Uh, you know, we, we, it had really cool aerodynamic brake ducts and everything on the bottom it had a rear sway bar which was really you know things just weren't done and the setup that we had in it was so totally different from from everything else and we went there and jeff was quick with it and they had you know the guys had told me do not screw yourself up you know practicing too late in the afternoon and you know all these things because the track changes and i remember we i think we um we drew a late number and and uh um or an early number can't remember what it was then but, but qualifying we should have sat on the pole ended up third and then uh didn't even practice happy hour and that freaked people out they're like why aren't these guys practicing because i knew what i needed to know i knew when the race was going to be run and you know practice was three or four hours after that and everybody had warned me about don't don't screw yourself up with this racetrack and we went in there the next day and and uh you know we took the lead and and had a had a great race with uh with Ernie Irvin, there was a lot of controversy uh, in that race, the Bodine brothers and yeah. the Hoosier tires, and it just was incredible. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we came out of there as, uh, as winners, and that was only our, our second win. And, uh, you know, my biggest m memory is just standing there watching 350,000 people all the way around that place, you know, on the TV monitor, just standing up cheering, you know, and I'm to this day never, never 
been able to experience that again. It was at that point where the Jeff Gordon, Ray Evernham juggernaut kind of launched into the stratosphere. At what point did you realize that the ride that you were on at that point was going to change your life forever? Oh, you know, you don't really think that much about that. But I knew when, when, when we won our first race at Charlotte, yeah, it's like I knew right then and there, if you never win another one, they can't take that one away from you. So my life had changed. And I knew that I had a responsibility because I had this, I had the responsibility of, of taking this young phenom talent and making sure that he got to be everything that he could be in the sport. And I had um, commitments. You know, I, I made commitments to Mr. Hendrick. I made commitments to my team. You know, and I, I, that was a big sense of responsibility not to let all those people down who, you know, who believed in me enough to either follow me down from New Jersey with several of those uh, you know, original number 24 team guys. You know, they, they left their homes, families, and yeah. or moved their families to, to move down to support me because most of those guys were, you know, half that team was made up of my old IROC guys, you know. Uh, and they believed in me. Mr. Hendrick believed in me. And, and again, that responsibility, I said, I knew we, we had something there. And at that point, it, it became about, okay, how can we beat the black car? You know, it was never, you know, it yeah. was about just doing well. We got to do as well as we can in 93 and 94. We just got to win. We got to get to that point. Well, after we won the Brickyard, it, it, it came to be, okay, how do, we beat, how do we beat the black car? Because if we want that trophy, we got to go through him. So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, this week, obviously talking about Jeff Gordon and Ray Evernham. He's got plenty of Jeff Gordon paraphernalia. And in our second segment, we're going to talk about Rusty Wallace winning at Sears Point, Mark Martin coming in second. Yeah, he's got some pretty cool stuff on them too. So be sure and check that out at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Don't forget the 10% discount. Enter scene, S-C-E-N-E, at checkout. Follow on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out the inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Yeah, you got to check out that, that inventory. There are things out there I know you never knew existed. You know, speaking of that, speaking of stuff out there that we didn't know existed, got a Twitter message yesterday from Matt Weaver. Yeah. I did not know that there was a, such a thing as NASCAR scene playing cards. I got news for you. I didn't either. I really? I knew. That's the first time I've ever seen that deck. Now, are these legit? That I do not know. I think they are legit, but I can't say right offhand. Be that as it may, I mean, if you're a scene fan, if you're a racing history fan, go play cards. So, Steve, when Jeff Gordon made the decision to move over to Hendrick Motorsports and leave Ford for Chevrolet, there was obviously a lot of controversy that came along with that. But in the midst of all that, there was talk and there was a report in scene about it 
there was talk that Ray was going to be replaced by Eddie Dickerson as crew chief before Jeff Gordon had ever made a single cup start. Well, you know, that stems to the fact that Ray did not have much experience as a crew chief. And as he has told us, he wasn't prepared to be a crew chief in his mind. So the rumor was that an experienced man would take the position over Ray, and that was going to be Eddie Dickerson, who did have some crew chief experience. So there was some credence to it. What I find intriguing is this. How did he go from somebody who felt so ill-prepared to be a cup crew chief to somebody who basically wrote the book on how to be a cup crew chief today? Yeah, well, in a single word, potential. When Ray came on board, I'm convinced Rick Hendrick saw his potential, just as he saw Jeff Gordon's potential as a driver, and he decided to mesh the two together. Ray uh, is the kind of guy that obviously learned quickly, and as he told us, learned from some of the best. Well, he also said that he took lessons to heart from those who had went before him, guys like Ray Fox, Smokey Eunuch, Leonard Wood, and did the best he could to apply what he learned from them to today's world. Well, Ray is the type of crew chief. I think, you know, there are several types of crew chiefs, and you obviously know that. There's the stern taskmaster type, there's the laid-back type, and then there's Ray. He's the cerebral type. He is very keen on knowledge, and he absorbed as much as he possibly can from the lessons he learned from guys with more experience and more knowledge. He absorbed it, and I think that exactly what made him uh, an outstanding crew chief. Talk about absorbing knowledge. He not only learned from people in the garage that had gone before him, he also looked kind of outside the box a little bit. And I think that's what began to kind of separate him from the pack a little bit. He was, you know, reading all he could about Vince Lombardi. Right. He was not only learning all he could about Pat Riley and Bill Parcells and guys like that, he was calling them up. He was calling Pat Riley. He was calling Bill Parcells. I think the lessons that he learned from folks like that in leadership really set him apart. Well, I think you're right about that. The key word, as you said, was leadership. Ray was not only trying to learn as much as he can about the technical side of NASCAR. He had a lot of knowledge as a mechanic. Let's not ignore that. But he always wanted to learn more. Key is he wanted to learn how to be a leader. Okay. Not just a crew chief, but a leader. And this is very important to the success of Jeff Gordon. Now, I think my theory has always been that Jeff looked to Ray not as a father figure because, you know, he had a very good relationship with his stepdad. I think he looked at him as the big brother, the big brother who can teach him the ways of the world, not only of race, but the ways of the world. I'll tell you a little story about how I came to believe that. It's probably an urban legend, but I do think it took place. We deal in only facts on this podcast. <laughs> well, but we don't it. deal in legend. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> if we don't deal in legends, what are we doing here? I mean, <laughs> anyway, the urban legend, the story goes that Jeff won a race. I'm thinking probably his first one at Charlotte. And he was heard on the radio going, I did it, I did it, I did it. And a calm, more mature voice came back to him over the radio and said, Jeff, we, we did it. Yeah, and there's and a that, big difference. There. That, there is. And that, to me, made a great impression on Jeff, something else he learned from his older brother. Hey, 
there's no I in winter. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. W. No, I think there <laughs> now, Ray went from feeling like that, feeling kind of inadequate to be a leader. And in 1994, in May of 1994 at Charlotte, it gets down to crunch time. And Ray makes a call that gives Jeff Gordon his very first Winston Cup win. Right. Two tires instead of four. And yeah. that got him out first and got him out in well into the lead. I think he won the race by four seconds. That's a gutsy call. Sure. To get a first win and with everybody else kind of taking on four and to come out in front of Rusty Wallace. Well, we're talking and, about. You know, Rusty's going to be charging. Yeah. That was a very good strategic pitch stop call by Ray. It also was a perfect example of what he had learned as a leader. To lead, sometimes you have to take chances and count on the people who are behind you to finish the job. So he says, okay, I'm going to make this gamble. I'm going to give Jeff a chance to win the race. That's all I can do. And he does that, and Jeff indeed wins the race. A strong indication of the unity and the same thought mode between both men. So they win at Charlotte, and I think if it had been that race alone, I think people would have got the impression that, hey, this kid's a good driver, he's got some potential. But then they go to Indy, and we've talked about this before. Yeah. When they won at Indy, that rocketed them into the stratosphere. Absolutely. That was huge. Well, the race was huge. Yeah. I mean, no doubt about it, and, and, and for Jeff and Ray – to win the Brickyard 400 in Indianapolis in front of the hometown crowd because he was from Pittsburgh, Indiana, which, by the way, went nuts that night over his victory. Uh, that is very, very significant. If they had never won another race, that would have still put them in their place in NASCAR history. As it was, of course, they continued to win races and strengthen their own reputations. After dreaming of driving the Indy 500 for Roger Penske, what do you think it meant to Ray to go there and win the first Brickyard yeah. 400? Do you think maybe somewhere he might have been what might have been? Uh, well, maybe, but I think, on the other hand, he realized, look, I am never going to drive for Roger Penske in the Indianapolis 500. I'm a NASCAR crew chief. What's the best thing I can do? not only for my team, but for myself, win at Indianapolis. And that's exactly what he did. I think he had a very, very strong measure of self-satisfaction. So Ray said that they built a special car for that race. <laughs> uh, do you think? <laughs> Steve, what do you think he meant by special? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. They didn't get caught for anything, but Ray learned his lessons as a crew chief and a leader. Now, you name me. One crew chief in the history of NASCAR that hasn't, shall we say, pushed the envelope when it comes to rules, car construction, anything else. If you can do that, you're a better man than I. So, I don't think you can. So, what? Ray was there. He was part of it all. Well, Steve, it's one thing to stretch the envelope, but to blow it completely up is <laughs> <laughs> something a little bit different. Well, I guess if, I guess if you're going to do something, <laughs> go all out. <laughs> but I say, like Ray was like every other crew chief I've ever known in NASCAR. But, you know, shall we say there have been times when he's taken 
at least a slap on the wrist from NASCAR to let them know they know what's going on. Where was it? Was it the Winston where he brought? T-Rex. Yeah, the T-Rex. Yeah. And NASCAR's <laughs> word to him was, never, ever let us see this car again. Yeah, it wasn't exactly illegal, according to them, but don't bring it back. That's right. <laughs> so, he's a crew chief. Hey, that's what they do. Hi, I'm Kirk Shelmerdine, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Y'all be careful going home. Use your turn signal, wear your seatbelts, and get the hell out of the left lane! Steve, May 9th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Scene, 76 pages of NASCAR history. How about that? <laughs> we were in our heyday back then. Well, going through this issue, I knew that Rusty Wallace had won the race at Sears Point, and I kind of vaguely remembered the fact that he kind of got his hand slapped for being too low during post-race inspection. He was three sixteenths of an inch low. But Steve, here's the rub. Rusty was fined $25,000 before he left the racetrack that day. Well, let me try That is something else. (laughs) I mean, given today's climate, it's a day or two. Yeah. That wouldn't happen. NASCAR today, as we know, has has solid rules and even lists the type of punishment teams are going to get if they violate these rules. All of that is pretty much given. But NASCAR was not that way in the past. It had rules, of course, and it had punishments, of course. When it came to enforcing the rules, NASCAR was very judgmental, like an umpire. Uh, sometimes the balls and strikes were balls and strikes, and sometimes they weren't. Well, in this particular case, best I remember, NASCAR said the fact that the car was lower by three sixteenths of an inch and a, a, a shock was bottoming out while Rusty was driving, to them, did not enhance his chances to win a race. But it was still against the rules. So it made one of those quick judgment calls and said, hey, $25,000, and we'll let you, we're going to find you right now because we don't want to hang around and see this thing fester, but we do have to enforce the rules. You didn't cheat to win. That's not what we're saying. Let's just get it over with. Well, NASCAR spokesman Kevin Triplett spoke to that yeah. in the paper. He said, we didn't feel it was a competition-enhancing situation. We didn't feel it was intentional. In inspection, we found a right rear shock that had obviously been bottoming out. We found a jack screw plate in the right front that was damaged. Right. And I tell you, I think the fact that they did it so quickly and got tried to get it over with is one reason why most of us who were there, or most of us who knew about it, just have a vague memory about it. It wasn't a big deal, and uh, that's the way that NASCAR wanted to play it. Well, I went through the next two or three issues to see if there was any news of Rusty or Penske Racing appealing the fine, but there was nothing. No. They evidently paid the 25000 and that was that. Well, yeah, and they won the race, and NASCAR didn't threaten to take the win away from them, which they had done at Sonoma earlier with Ricky Rudd and Davey Allison. Well, that's a whole different kettle of fish. <laughs> Are you trying to get my blood pressure up? <laughs> well, it's a much different scenario, granted, but uh, this particular time... As I alluded to earlier, uh, the reason I think it is a vague memory is because nobody made an issue out of it, and so it's hard to remember it. 
Well, Rusty said, NASCAR said, we know you didn't screw us. <laughs> if we thought you had, we'd have taken the win away. But right. rules are rules, and we have to enforce them. We know you didn't get any advantage whatsoever by what happened, but we have to enforce the rules. That's it. In a nutshell, there it is. On these 76 pages. To this day, it is amazing to me how going through one of these papers can just absolutely jog your memory. I oh, agree. It's I incredible. Agree. It's you incredible. You can look on every, just about every page and say, oh, yeah, that happened. I remember that. Bobby Hamilton was running that race, and he had a water bottle come loose in the car. And <laughs> he said, I had to about park it on the racetrack to get it out of there. I mean, it hit me on the head. It landed in my lap. It landed down at the pedals. I couldn't believe the thing was so heavy when it got to tossing around. We got it out, but we lost so much time. You wouldn't believe how many cars we hit <laughs> trying to get in line. That's like having a missile launch inside of your car and bouncing all over the place. Golly, that has got to be a real menace and distracting thing. Then in the photo spread, Phil Cavelli had a pretty cool photo of Dell Earnhardt strapping into Ricky Craven's car. During the final practice session, and of course, that kind of got my attention. Ricky had been hurt in just that terrible turnover at Talladega where he went into the fence and all that. And his Larry Hedrick Motorsports team had lined up Ron Hornaday to serve as a relief driver. But then Ron had to miss the practice because he was driving Dell's Craftsman Truck Series truck to a victory in Portland, Oregon that same day, the day of the final practice at the Winston Cup race in Sonoma. So Dale evidently got into Ricky's car and shook it down a little bit. Regular merry-go-round of drivers there, wouldn't you say? Kind of an interesting scenario, but uh, it's things like that have happened in NASCAR before. And I think one thing it does illustrate is the, even though these competitors race against each other, they're all members of the same fraternity and don't mind helping out each other. Bill Elliott had been involved in another accident at Talladega where his car kind of lifted up in the air, kind of settled down on its nose, and that actually caused Bill to have a four-part fracture just below his left hip, and he had to miss the next five races after Talladega, and this at Sears Point was the first race that he missed. And going through this paper, again, (laughs) there's a photo of Harry Gant, who had been lined up to sub for Elliott in the All-Star race at Charlotte later that month. And let's just say it was kind of jarring to see Harry Gant in McDonald's gear. Right, well... (laughs) That just doesn't compute. (laughs) Everybody was used to seeing Harry in the skull green colors, and to see him decked out in an entirely different uniform with an entirely different uh, look. Well, you probably had to look twice, do a double take to make sure it was Harry. And then, Steve, there is a full-page sidebar that I did on Mark Martin's second-place finish and a half-page sidebar that I did on Del Earnhardt running fourth. Yeah, we finally got some work out of you. (laughs) Well, I'm telling you, (laughs) that day, that was a miracle. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think you said issues earlier. Yeah, I, I most definitely had issues. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether it was the room service that I got the night that I got there or the restaurant that I ate at the day before the race, but I got really, really, really bad food poisoning. Let's just say that it was a Herculean effort (laughs) on my part just to be at the racetrack, much less ride a couple of sidebars. (laughs) I admire you, Rick. That is called dedication to duty. Now, spell duty, D-U-T-Y in this particular case. (laughs) 
And Steve, I want to say there were two full-page sidebars in that issue. There was one on Mark Martin. There was another on Wally Dallenbach. And ordinarily, when we traveled, we traveled in twos. That weekend, though, it was Deb who wrote the lead. Right. And I had the two sidebars, and you were also there, and neither of us can kind of remember. I guess you had meetings with NASCAR or something. I don't know. Well, I think that, and I was working on something for the paper down the road, as best I recall. So, Steve, basically, I think that you kind of took up the slack a little bit and took that one sidebar off of my plate. I think that's probably what did happen. As I recall, I did have some business out there. And so uh, I decided, though, that maybe I'll help old Rick out a little bit, given his (coughs) condition. (laughs) Well, here's the other story about that day that I remember so well. I went to the Enfield Care Center and kind of laid down a little bit. And then Elmo Langley had promised me a ride around the racetrack. And I'd never been to Sears Point before, so I just wanted to basically familiarize myself with the track. Right, right. Let's just say that going around Sears Point in the pace car with Elmo Langley driving while you've got food poisoning, <laughs> holy cow. I didn't, I didn't want <laughs> There's a picture in my mind. Go away, go away, go away. I basically rolled out of the car and crawled back to the infield care center. (laughs) Steve, on iTunes, folks can leave us a five-star rating and a written review. And once we get to 100, we will be passing out some more books. There you go. Now, one of the latest reviews that we have was posted on iTunes by Russell Mays. He says, I simply cannot get enough of this podcast. As a kid, it was a treat to get to go to the library and binge read Winston Cup scene. Now I can binge listen to all of the great stories and inside information from a great era in NASCAR racing. Rick and Steve covered the sport and bring their depth of knowledge to the show every week. If you love the history of NASCAR, this is for you. And now, Russell, sincerely, we appreciate that very much. Steve, did you catch the headline on that review? I'm about to. Experts uh-huh. on NASCAR history. <laughs> I like that. Maybe we're just a couple of old farts. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> Who with remember experts. too much. <laughs> Let's go with experts. <laughs> Again, help us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast if you'd rather do a one-time deal follow us on twitter at the scene vault thank you so much for listening